Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and my wife, Susan, used to really like the show Roseanne, back before Roseanne Barr revealed her racist views. But I still remember the 1994 episode where Roseanne kissed another woman, Mario Hemingway. I think the episode was called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And it was just incredibly controversial. ABC was initially not even going to air the episode. Kraft Foods pulled its ads. And it was just a real reflection of where we were at in this country at that point in time. And then if you fast forward, I remember the 2004 presidential campaign and how everybody was all excited about Howard Dean and how progressive and revolutionary he was because he supported civil unions for same-sex couples, not marriage, but civil unions. And then I also distinctly remember 2007, and I was at a reception for Barack Obama for his, his, his nascent presidential campaign. And he was asked a question about same-sex marriage. And I recall to this day seeing him wrestle with how to convey his support really through body language and attitude, but without actually saying the words. And he ended his, his uh, remarks by saying, keep pushing me on it with a very meaningful look. But he couldn't actually come out and say the words at that time in terms of he supported marriage equality. And so now marriage equality is the law of the land. It, it's for most people, it's ridiculous to think that two people who love each other can't get married. And so really reflecting back over the past few decades of, and I don't think that in my adult lifetime, that there has been any struggle for equality that has made as significant a progress and impact in the national consciousness as the LGBTQ plus struggle for justice and equality. But that did not happen overnight, and it required playing the long game and taking the long view. And this is a moment in history that requires taking the long view as well. We're recording this podcast on the day the Supreme Court handed down its decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Two years ago this month, the entire world was marching for racial justice after the killing of George Floyd. And now the president won't even appoint a task force to even study what has owed black people for 400 years of racial terror and exploitation. But this is a long journey and a long struggle. And I'm old enough to remember when everyone lost their minds because Roseanne kissed a woman. There's a lot we can learn from the struggle for LGBTQ equality, and we have the perfect guest today to discuss that journey with us, an international leader for decades, longtime friend of mine, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And for this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang, in terms of the long sweep of history, a woman whose family, speaking of the long game, was only allowed to become U.S. citizens as a result of the civil rights movement ending anti-Asian discrimination laws and practices in 1965, which was not that long ago, and I know it's not that long ago because I was alive back <laughs> then, I'm not that old. Hi, Charlene. How are you holding up in these turbulent times? And do you want to introduce our guest today? Hey, Steve. Thanks for a great setup for today's conversation. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. My heart is heavy today, and my feelings are you know, ranging from just grief, sadness, and frustration to let me try to find ways to keep myself busy today so I don't burn anything down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, and, I am a lawyer. I'm not an active <laughs> member of the bar. So, <laughs> And I am, I'm not alone. One of the, I will say, upsides of social media is that during times like this, it's a good reminder that we're not alone. I've been just hearing from a lot of, especially my women friends, activist friends on just how, you know, we're all 
for us reaching out to each other to support one another and sharing with each other how we feel in this moment regarding the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but also all the implications. And we'll talk more about that today in our conversation. I am really excited to talk to our special guest today, who we did plan to talk to, um, you know, I think one or two weeks before even today's recording, because there is so much that's connected around the work that our guest has done and the work that she continues to do, especially in the context of the larger work of fighting for justice, equal rights, and humanity for everybody in this country. So on that note, today we have on our special guest, Julie Dorf. She's been a leader in the LGBTQ rights movement for nearly 30 years. She currently serves as the co-chair of the Council for Global Equality. That's a coalition of 32 organizations working together for an inclusive U.S. foreign policy. And she's not just the co-chair, but she's the co-founder. Julie also founded and directed the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, which is now called Outright Action International, from 1990 to 2000. This is an organization that advances the human rights of all people subject to discrimination or abuse on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, or HIV status. Welcome, Julie. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a very interesting day to be having this conversation, but um, really appreciate the platform. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us. I was reflecting back on how we met. We have a, a mutual friend, Amy Epstein, and part of me thinks that you and I were the two most political people that she knew, so she wanted to make sure that we connected with each other. <laughs> That's and, probably true. Um, but it's been you know, great to kind of walk this road over the many years. I don't think we mentioned in the bio, Julie's also um, been on the board of Power Pack with lots of intersectional connections in this, in this journey and the struggle for justice. But, you know, Julie, in terms of the whole, as I think about how long we've known each other, I don't know how and why you got started, and particularly in terms of the international aspect, right? And, and I'm thinking about it now. It's like it's so interesting is that, you know, I came from the Midwest to San Francisco, and a lot of it was the epicenter of the LGBTQ movement in many ways. But you were always jumping on a plane and going to, to other countries from San Francisco. So how did you begin and make that decision that you wanted to focus there? And, and what was that impetus on, in, in terms of starting that work? Well, you know, there's a lot of ways I, I often answer that question, but I was a Russian and Soviet studies major, that tells you how old I am, in college and spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union in the kind of mid to late 80s. And prior to that, I was very involved in all sorts of kind of progressive issues on campus, ranging from the anti-apartheid movement to the Central American solidarity work and actually had a really profound experience on the campus of Wesleyan University right immediately after the disaster in Bhopal, India, uh, the Union Carbide um, mm -hmm. chemical leak. And because I was part of the group that knew exactly where the investments were from the campus um, endowment because mm -hmm. of our anti-apartheid work. We knew that Wesleyan University owned shares of Union Carbide. Union Carbide was a 20-minute drive away from campus. Oh, and wow. so the group of us in the Democratic Socialists of America Club, you know, got in the car, made some quick signs and just, you know, stage a protest with a list of demands for accountability to the people of India, you know, outside the headquarters. 
and happened to get a ton of media attention and they threw me in front of the AP reporter or some, you know, some big syndicate. And, um, and I don't know what I said. I said something about, you know, accountability and to make sure that Union Carbide does the right thing. And it gets picked up and all over the world. And all of a sudden, a few weeks later, I start getting letters to my mailbox at, you know, at Wesleyan from people in India saying, you know, thank you so much for caring. Wow. And I, I mean, it wasn't the only thing, but it was one of the most kind of influential moments of my life, realizing just how much disproportionate power we have because of mm. the privilege of our location, being born in the United States, being close to centers of power, whether they're corporate or governmental or whatever. And that, you know, I had some responsibility. I also grew up a religious Jew with a lot of a lot of emphasis on, you know, what is my responsibility, you know, as a human being in this world, and it's my job to make it a better place. And I was coming out as a lesbian. I mean, sort of all these things were happening. You know, I was kind of naturally progressive in my political orientation. And, you know, I just realized that I, I really wanted to use that power and privilege for good, and that we had a particular set of tools because of being located in the United States um, and that it was important to do that. I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union. I also worked with like all kinds of dissident groups there. And one of the things, and I'll, I'll ring this back to marriage for you in a second, but um, you know, at that point, we still had sodomy laws in the United States and they had, even if they weren't being robustly used, and we had sodomy laws all over the world, including the, at that point, the Soviet Union, but it was actually being actively used. So part of what mm -hmm. I did as a senior in college was interview former prisoners um, and actually write about what was going on for mm -hmm. for gay people in Russia. And um, and it was in that context that I realized there was this missing piece of the human rights field around abuses and prisoners of conscience and all of that based on sexual orientation and gender identity, although we didn't really talk about gender identity back in the 80s and 90s in the same way, um, but certainly in terms of sexual orientation and kind of came back and really worked hard on the main human rights systems, whether it was the UN or Amnesty International, but really kind of decided to utilize the human rights framework to be more inclusive of, of LGBTQ issues. Um, and that was really what got me to start the now Outright International, um, which is based in New York. But at that point, it was based in my kitchen on Folsom Street in San Francisco. How, how old were you when you started it? And is that the person you're doing out of college? <laughs> I was 25 by the time mm -hmm. the organization got started, yeah. Mm -hmm. I peaked early. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking in your, um, I just loved the way you told your stories. And I'm so wowed by like this history that you have lived through. And in, you know, with so much, I just have so much respect and admiration for all the, the ways in which that you have done this work uh, and have this perspective about the, the work on a global level. You know, our, our show is largely, uh, if not primarily focused on, the U.S., but it's just always a good reminder. And, you know, I'm also hearing from friends in other countries 
who can't believe what they're seeing happening mm -hmm. in the U.S. As I had mentioned earlier, you founded the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission in 1990, correct? And yes. Eagle Herc, as we called it back then. <laughs> it was a terrible acronym. <laughs> oh, okay. I, they did a really good job rebranding. <laughs> I didn't understand that it was an acronym, so I just thought it was like your moniker, like your superhero <laughs> name or something, But yeah, uh, which is amazing. And I wanted to just quote from... This scholar who wrote uh, mentioned you in a book, scholar Ryan Thorson wrote in his 2014 book, Transnational LBGT Activism, that you, quote, build the organization from a grassroots group in the style of ACT UP, end quote, into an authoritative source on LGBTQ rights around the world. How did the various movements for LGBTQ rights during the 80s, the 90s, impact the way you approached activism? You know, I like to say that we were genuinely a ragtag group of immigrants and activists and, you know, progressives who came together to form the organization, unlike most human rights groups, which come together by international human rights lawyers. Actually, our first couple of years as a as a small staff, we had someone, an actual lawyer come and help train us <laughs> with like how to understand the international civil and political, you know, codes and, you know, treaties that we should be referencing, which was super easy to to play lawyer, but we were really organizers and activists and really because of the AIDS movement and honestly because we didn't have social media and the internet and kind of click activism or whatever. I mean, we, but particularly because of ACT UP and Queer Nation and AIDS Treatment Coalition and other, you know, genuinely grassroots organizing groups, it was a very different time. And we could organize, you know, a protest in front of the Mexican consulate in downtown San Francisco to protest murders that were not being uh, appropriately handled because of, you know, people being gay or trans or, you know, any number of things that we would find out about going on around the world. You know, in 24 hours, we could get 30 to 50 people out for a protest by putting it on an, a hotline that people were used to calling every night to find out what actions were going. A hotline? <laughs> What's that? Like, I know. I, I know. <laughs> people today, younger generations are probably just like, how did you even organize without a cell phone? No, exactly. We had no cell phones. We, we, just we're integrating the fax machine you know, wow. with, the, with the horrible paper. Um, so great. But, you know, but it was based on in real life, in-person meetings and relationships and really expensive phone bills, I have to say. <laughs> yep. One I of bet. the biggest oh. reasons that I started the organization was because I couldn't afford my own phone bill any longer. <laughs> <laughs> somebody to help me out with that. But um, yeah, and a big part of what we did in the early days actually was literally get, you know, kind of printers and, and, and fax machines, which was the state of the art technology to activists around the world. And similarly, you know, AIDS medications, our first offices were in the Castro district. And we used to have a volunteer program that would go to the hospices and after people died, collect all their leftover medication. Mm. And then, you know, as well as like 
you know, disposable syringes and other things like that. And when, and then people would come to the office and they'd be heading out to South Africa or Burma or, you know, any number of Mexico, you know, people would bring, you know, literally, you know, carry stuff wow. because access to meds were, were not universal, you know, were not available. Yeah. It was a very, very different time. People were dying. My office manager died while he worked for me. You know, people were dying and the urgency and the personal nature of the intersection between homophobia, the Reagan politics, the AIDS movement, you know, came together. And we got this little subset of folks who had either come from other countries and, and landed in the United States or you know, we're deeply connected. Like, you know, we had folks from the Modern Times bookstore, Teddy Matthews, who spent a lot of time in Nicaragua, and Enrique Assis, who was from Argentina, and we had a Romanian. And, you know, we had folks who happened to be here in San Francisco who really came together and brought their contacts and their, you know, their newspaper clippings and their files from home and, you know, helped form the organization to really be in solidarity with folks who were working on these issues around the world. You know, as you're talking, I'm curious how you were received, both within the LGBTQ movement, because you had a particular focus, a slice of it, then also in terms of the larger philanthropic community, how receptive were people to the work that you were trying to get going? Man, it was hard. It was only really because of my own combination of privilege and chutzpah that I could do the work for basically not a lot of money for many, many years. But mostly we raised money from individuals. Like there weren't foundations that, you know, I mean, it took me 10 years to crack the Ford Foundation. And there weren't that many LGBT foundations. I mean, one of our first grants was from Vanguard, which used to be a progressive Bay Area foundation that no longer exists, unfortunately. And a couple people, actually, there were a few small kind of estates that of people who had died of AIDS, who wanted, whose group of friends were giving their money away after they died. There were a few kind of grants like that, that we managed to get in the early days. But mostly, we raised our money in small donations from individuals, you know, for, for many, many, many years. And that was also really hard, right? I mean, given what I just described in terms of the, the urgency of having a community that was dying and, you know, we hadn't quite cracked the protease inhibitors yet. And like, you know, it was people, a lot of donors you know, there weren't that many, but a lot of them felt like things were too pressing at home and they just couldn't think that in that kind of scale. You know, that said, I think a lot of what we did in those early days was was really actually kind of make the case, right? We collected the documentation. We had proof that these were actual abuses happening every day all around the world that needed to be addressed. And that particular style of work not only was important for the larger human rights movement to start to be more inclusive, which was probably the you know the biggest thing that we did um, in terms of shifting the human rights space in those first 10 years, but also it helped people get political asylum and be able to come to the United States and other places, but particularly here. And those folks who actually managed to flee some really horrific situation and come and find safety in the United States based on being persecuted because of their sexual orientation, 
those stories were really, really impactful. And that helped actually to kind of make the case quite a bit. You know, we were both changing the systems here in the United States, but we were also genuinely saving people's lives. And and that that kept us afloat. Now, we, this is not a huge organization. Like, you know, by the time I left after 10 years of running it, you know, we were still not even, we had just cracked, I think, a million dollars or something and had 16 mm-hmm. staff in New York and San Francisco, which was a lot of growth over 10 years. But, you know, it was mostly, again, like individual donors. Well, we're going to turn to the, maybe there's a pivot to the, lessons of the marriage equality struggle, but I'm also interested, so I'm recalling now, you had a fair amount of interaction, if I remember right, with the government, right, in terms of trying to raise these issues with, you know, people in D.C. So I'm interested on that front. Did you see an evolution of openness, support? What was that reflection like? Yeah, you know, I was was fortunate that on my first board of directors, I had Barney Frank's former husband, who was a great ally to kind of show me the ways of Washington a little bit. And I, you know, we had early engagements with the State Department. There was certainly some openness to documenting some of the um, abuses based on sexual orientation in those early days. Congressman Frank was very helpful with the relationship with Janet Reno, then Attorney General, who did help open the door for asylum based on sexual orientation in the U.S. during that period. And you know, there were some significant gains, certainly not super senior levels. Fast forward today, that is mostly what I do right now is 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 work on U.S. foreign policy actions and policies related to sexual orientation, gender identity, and, and sex characteristics and work on both the Hill and kind of all arms of the administration. You know, I went back into this work after a brief stint in philanthropy kind of that same time you were just describing of your interaction with then candidate Obama right at 2007 mm-hmm. when we realized okay yeah i mean the bar was so low i mean the mm-hmm. last years of the bush administration in terms of like global policy on this stuff it was bad enough domestically but global policy was like you know we were in cahoots with the Vatican at the UN and at any multilateral wow. yeah it was bad on abortion and on a and on LGBT rights. And so, you know, we realized, okay, I felt confident we were either going to have, you know, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama as president. And either way, we're going to be able to do massive things from, I mean, I was there when Hillary Clinton in Beijing, you know, made her famous women's rights or human rights speech. Mm -hmm. And it, I was, you know, we knew that we could get something equally good. We had no idea we were going to get both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for this work. (laughs) And I was a an early Obama supporter, mostly over Israel Palestine stuff, but getting Hillary Clinton to do her gay rights or human rights speech in Geneva in 2011 was was also a really significant turning point for this country. And I mean we had we had we had a really amazing eight-year run with Obama. We had a very tricky time during the Trump era. We're having another to say the least. Good, <laughs> good run right now to a certain degree in terms of what we can get out of the executive branch of government. But um, you know, but all in the context of as we're all feeling today, the impact of the extremism that reached the highest levels of government during the Trump era, which we are Mm -hmm. still feeling the effects of, 
and not just here, but around the world. You know, the extremists are very interconnected at this point, whether they're the white supremacists or the anti-Semites or the anti-gender ideologists. You know, the, you know, we saw Vladimir Putin in 2013 mm. instrumentalize homophobia for political purposes and with his propaganda law, which, you know, then got copied and hungry. And you heard Ron DeSantis say that the inspiration for the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida came from Viktor Orban. Um, wow. You know, all these things are are very, very interconnected. And, yeah. you know, part of what we do right now is, is attempt to influence how the U.S. responds. Wanted to pivot and talk about marriage equality and lessons learned, just to give some context again. Uh, In response to the conservative backlash against the growing acceptance of homosexuality, President Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, also known as DOMA, which prohibited the recognition of same-sex marriage at the federal level in 1996. Gay marriage then became a cultural war at the time. It wasn't until 2013 that the Supreme Court ruled that DOMA was unconstitutional. Then in 2015, after decades of organizing, marriage equality was made legal in all 50 states through the landmark Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hobbes. How would you, Julie, describe your role in the movement to legalize gay marriage? Well, I was I was a close friend and colleague of Evan Wolfson, who was the kind of LGBT community's architect for the marriage movement in the U.S. And I was on the the board of the C4 um, of Freedom to Marry, which was kind of the national organization that that helped to push forward a very thoughtful strategy towards marriage equality in the U.S. I also, at that point, worked for the Horizons Foundation um, here in the Bay Area and organized the kind of philanthropic players locally towards marriage equality here in the state of California. So I was involved on, on multiple levels with, with the marriage movement in the U.S. You know, I was also one of the people on the kind of feminist progressive side who had quite a bit of, you know, kind of ideological concerns about it becoming our movement's kind of top priority. And, you know, so it took me a little while to, to feel comfortable being kind of in leadership around it. But I think you know, in some ways, because of having lived through the AIDS movement and understanding what the power of of an issue that really mobilizes people to get out, like I'm so mm-hmm. curious how many people take to the streets tonight and tomorrow mm-hmm. around the fall of Roe, because we have become so complacent and we have not mm-hmm. we 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 don't have that same culture of getting out in the streets and. And, you know, speaking with our bodies much anymore. And I and I saw that marriage did that, actually, <laughs> and that it was such a deep, uh, such a, a deep mobilizer, but also deep desire for, of people across all kinds of diversities to want their just to genuinely want their relationships recognized and validated. And I was also really you know, deeply aware of what it felt like to be a second class citizen, especially mm-hmm. in the in the prop eight years here in California, the post prop eight years and the you know, and the that devastating defeat, even though it was the same night as as Obama won. Um right, so people but, prop eight and everybody remember what that was. Yeah, prop 
Prop 8 was, well, Prop 8 came out of a movement to ban marriage equality state by state, which was, in fact, you know, when I think about, you know, as, as, a, as we're on the day that, you know, Roe came down, you know, one of our, the strategy of the, the marriage equality movement was actually very much influenced by the trajectory of abortion in this country. And Evan Wolfson, you know, who I learned a lot from working with, you know, was very, very clear, like, we can't do what happened with Roe. We actually have to make sure we get a majority of states Mm. and a majority of political opinion on our side before the Supreme Court makes the decision on marriage. And I mean, there were a few other lessons learned, but, you know, we had this, you know, this kind of like, you know, in the no paper with the strategy. And it was like this 20-20-20 strategy or 10-10-20, I can't remember what it was. But like, you know, we needed 10 states to have civil unions. We needed 10 states to have marriage equality. We needed, you know, 10 states to have some other domestic partnership thing. And, you know, we had, you know, and we really learned the hard way in those years that the kind of activist language and messaging didn't work. I mean, we just kept losing public referenda after public referenda on marriage equality or sometimes state constitutions. And because we kept talking about rights Mm -hmm. and unfair treatment and justice and the things that made sense to us as leaders of social justice movements. But after losing too much, we realized that, you know, the hearts and minds strategy needed to speak to that movable middle. Mm -hmm. And after a way, you know, kind of stepping back and looking at what was going to actually reach them and really doing focus groups and really doing serious message testing, we came away with a very different strategy, which did work. Um, However uncomfortable some of those progressives were, it was all about love and commitment. And it was all about showcasing the really kind of emotional, you know, palpable experience that people have when people they know and love actually get married and commit to each other. And 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 that changed the game for us. I want to dig into that for a minute, though, because it's you know it's just fascinating having gone through that. Right? I mean, I remember and then being here in San Francisco. Right? I remember when Gavin Newsom started issuing marriage licenses. Right, in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. And you're talking mm-hmm. about there's something people rushing into the streets. I mean, the it's even hard to convey to people who weren't there how like visceral it was. People are like rushing to city hall and just like it was really this thing you could really it was very palpable. You had that, and then you're talking about Prop Eight, right? So just for people to grasp this, right? So 2008, Barack Obama is elected president of the United States. He wins California by 24 percentage points, and in that same election. California voted to basically ban the same-sex mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. So, but that's the, the you know the polling, the elections, all that is play is has transformed itself now. And so, I just want to know as you reflect back on it. So you were starting to touch on it in terms of some of the hearts and minds pieces of it, but it also was there multiple dimensions to it. Right? There was a mm-hmm. sophisticated litigation strategy, and then there was organizing. So as you reflect back on that period. What do you attribute the success to in terms of what were the essential elements of that? I'm I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the 2004 moment in San Francisco, because, you know, a lot of states 
had those moments and, and Gavin Newsom became, you know, kind of a hero to the LGBT community because he made that decision to open up marriage, however brief. I mean, I was one of those people in those long lines that um, February to, to, to get married while it was available and, you know, only to have my marriage annulled you know, a few months later, and my fees returned to me, and, um, you know, and yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of legal chaos for a little while. But that moment of excitement, and those, the pictures of all these same-sex couples waiting for hours and hours in the rain around the block from City Hall, and then finally coming out to cheering crowds and flowers and media attention. And, you know, I do think it's important to, you know, to see like, that is what kind of, you know, mobilized me in a big way. I was like, wow, Mm. people are driving from Fresno for this. People, you know, are talking about how important it is for their families, how important it is for their health insurance, like, you you know, all kinds of reasons but mainly the leading with love part, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the very deep resonance that people have with that, which is why in the long run, even if today's a really demoralizing day and the reaction to the Obergefell decision in some of what we saw in the Roe decision, you know, mm-hmm. in Thomas's in particular, basically asking for a case to come to the court to challenge not just the marriage decision, but also the Lawrence decision, which was what struck down our sodomy laws in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, consensual private acts between, you know, two people of the same sex is still on the books, illegal mm-hmm. in 17 states of this country. And if that goes, if one of those cases comes to the court, I mean, it's really hard to believe you know, as well as, you know, kind of basically begging for a case on contraception, that that reaction to our progress, I think, by this kind of extremist court and extremist ideology, which I believe is in the minority, but has enormous power right now, Mm -hmm. is very, very sobering. So, you know, I think there's a few things. I think marriage is an important telltale of LGBT freedom and equality, but it is not the end point. As much as we do have a significant, significant, I think it's up to like 71% of the um, electorate, including Republic, voting Republicans, believe that marriage equality is the right answer, just like they do abortion rights. We're still fighting an extremist minority who have figured you know, who own the courts at this point and all the all the things that are problematic with our democracy, whether it's money in politics or gerrymandering or, you know, you know the, the, the many things that we um, attribute to the decline in our democracy, you know, I think the instrumentalizing of homophobia and particularly transphobia right now by the extremist sides is is powerful and is is working at the moment. I right. do think that's the short run, not the long run. But I also think, you know, going back that, you know, there are the, the LGBT quality is not just marriage. LGBT quality is economic justice, is reproductive rights, is, is racism. You know, we still don't have workplace non-discrimination. You know, the Equality Act, we can't get through the Senate. You know, there are states where you can get married one day and 
lose your job the next and that's perfectly legal. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's about the, you can't take it for granted how much it can be quickly could be taken away. It's like when the, when the new press came to me, I I wanted to write another book two years ago, I was like, I want to call how we win the civil war. And I want to use the civil war as like a metaphor for what's going on. And I was all like, no, we are actually, I mean, it's like the, the hearings are going on right now. It's like the president mm-hmm. of the United States attempted to overthrow the elected government. And it's being documented in these congressional hearings on the regular. And we just don't realize the level of intensity. I will say and make this key point that that is is not the not the majority of people. That's the right. Confederacy itself was a minority. We've moved on marriage equality and those issues to where that that is the majority position that we should actually have of equality within this country. So you know we're uh, none of us are are uh, kids anymore. We've been at this for a number of decades, um, and just curious where you are at and kind of what's next for you in terms of where you're, what this next chapter, uh, what you're going to be focusing on is, Julie. Thanks for that question, Steve. You know, I'm, I'm taking a, a couple months break to kind of recharge and give those questions some, some bigger thought, because I'm not sure I, I have a great answer for that. Mm. I have to say, I'm, you know, a, a, a proud parent of two amazing young people 19 and 23, who both identify as queer or trans, but definitely Mm. non-binary and, Mm. you know, have very much kind of out-queered their lesbian moms. Um, And (laughs) that gives us enormous both pride and vision for, you know, kind of what the, the next generation and their creativity and fierce politics, you know, can bring to our Mm -hmm. world. I'm not one of those people who thinks, well, it's time to retire. Just let it all go to the next generation. (laughs) I think that's some of our experiences uh, are important and we can't just uh, Mm -hmm. give up and and let the next gen, you know, take over. Um, Although we do need to make space for, for their leadership. And my, my oldest one who graduated, last year from college uh, during the horrible, horrible COVID period, um, mm. just started working uh, full-time for Outright International, actually, in New York um, oh, as wow. a content curator. So it's a lovely kind of full circle, and I'm oh, wow. super That's proud so, of so watching great. them be a young queer activist. And, you know, and they're, they really have fantastic politics and you know, and I don't think it's just my kids, but I think this next generation, and I think, I think, I do think though that queer spawn, as we like to call them, <laughs> do <laughs> actually have some particular new role to play in yeah. social justice movements. That's a great because point. they integrate, they're so much more genuinely and naturally intersectional mm-hmm. in the way that they think. And they're so creative and thoughtful about approaches to to gender, which ultimately are going to be way better tools for undoing this patriarchal misogyny mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. have in our country that made it impossible for, you know, Hillary Clinton to become president, you know, put the rapist in chief in power Instead, last term. Right. 
you know, and and led to today's horrible row decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so my eyes are on them to keep learning and listening while not giving up and staying determined to make progress in, in the lives we have right now. Yeah, and that's it's really a fascinating illustration in terms of talking about your kids while it's on processing. I remember you didn't have kids, and now they're like 19, 20, <laughs> but there's that issue. But it's like, I think that's one of the big missing pieces of like political analysis is how much the composition of the country and the electorate is changing with these young people coming into the mix, right? Mm-hmm. That Stacey Abrams lost by 54,000 votes in 2018. 500,000 people have turned 18 in Georgia since that time. And so yeah. that's like the stat, but then what you're talking about is giving real flavor to the character and the dynamics of those specific individual people. So that that's both very hopeful from a big picture standpoint, but it's also very much an important and missing piece from a lot of the political analysis that's going on now. We've got to come up with better ways of engaging, you know, these really amazing progressive young kids who have had it with the system. You know, I, I didn't understand at the time why young people loved Bernie Sanders, but I got it mm. over that period, right? Mm. And we need progressive vehicles for them because otherwise we're losing them completely. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, what do you, you know, hey adults. I mean, my daughter asked me this all the time. She's like, why did you guys let this? Like, like how could this happen? And how, how could so many adults keep letting, you know, you name it, environmental crisis, racism, homophobia, like, how can you guys keep letting this happen? And I don't have any answer to her ever. I said, you know, there are those of us who try to make a difference. And, you know, it's so deeply entrenched. All those things are so deeply entrenched. But that's why I say you and your generation, it's up to you. And she's like, oh, (laughs) but but, you know, I do. I agree that. Yeah, no, I agree that the kids today, they um, I'm always very inspired, impressed by them. And so also, but also people like you um, have laid down such an amazing foundation. So thank you for all the work that you've done and continue to do. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time. It's great to have this. Whenever I get a chance to really talk, and so we use the podcast to catch up, and I really appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you for having me, and thanks for your wonderful podcast. I'm a, I'm a fan. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Julie on Twitter at Julie Dorf, D-O-R-F. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, we are in a long-term struggle, my friends. So tend to your physical, mental, and emotional health and do what you have to do to take care of yourself so that you can continue to keep the faith.